Well, in this class, we want to review our statement of faith. And uh, so, just looking at it in front of you, you should have a copy of it there in front of you. Um, you might be thinking, well, what, what really is the value of a statement of faith? Aren't they a little bit old and outdated? Uh, a little bit irre- irrelevant in our day? Well, Second Timothy 2.15 says to study to show ourselves approved. Uh, a workman unto God that does not need to be ashamed, uh, rightly dividing the word of truth. And so I think we have a responsibility to guard the truth here at our church, and I think that's more than just my responsibility as a pastor, but also uh, your responsibility to know what we believe and to protect what we believe. Um, in fact, I would say it this way, the single most important thing about a church is what it believes. And let me say that again. The single most important thing about a church is what it believes. And so that's why we have a class called What Do We Believe? Now, some Christians are opposed to statements of faith. They say that Christian uh, revelation and Jesus Himself is too great to be reduced to mechanical formulas. So if you took our statement of faith and just looked at it, well, it just looks like a bunch of summarized or mechanical formulas, and the Scriptures are too great to be reduced to that. And in one sense, that's true, that the statement of faith can't say everything that, that, that we believe. It can't say everything about what we believe. But, but have you ever heard someone say, I have no creed but the Bible? I have no creed but the Bible. I don't, I don't buy into these statements of faith. Uh, the only thing I can accept is the Bible. Let's let's tease that out a little bit. What if someone came up to you and said that, I have no creed, I have no belief except for the Bible? What if you asked them this question? There are a lot of people that believe the Bible, like Presbyterians, Lutherans, Pentecostals. So if your only creed is the Bible, what exactly is it that you believe about the Bible? Right? I mean... You could ask a Pentecostal, I only believe, a Pentecostal, I only believe the Bible. What exactly do you believe about the Bible? See, that's important. We can't just try to, um, to, to cop out and just say, you know, I only believe the Bible. And, and we should believe the Bible. But, but what is ex- exactly do we believe? And so when people say no creed but the Bible, I think that's not really a position at all. And in many ways, it's a very dangerous place to be. Because you could have an influential leader who tries to take that kind of creed and he could no creed but the Bible, and and lead a church wherever he wants to go. Right? Because, hey, we all just are going to believe the Bible. So what this does is it helps narrow down what exactly we believe about the Bible. And that's why this is so important. Now, let's be clear that no statement of faith can perfectly plumb the depths of God's knowledge and purposes. And, And certainly our statement of faith is not exhaustive. That is, we're not going to say everything that we believe about everything. We could say it this way: I hope that that uh, I hope that we believe this statement of faith, but I hope this isn't all we believe, and that's what I mean by exhaustive. We're going to talk about that here in just a minute because these statements are mere statements. It's not everything that we believe about these these issues. All right, but before we begin, um, just a few general statements or a few general words about our statement of faith. First, they are biblical. Okay, we see them in Scripture. What you're going to find is after each statement, there's just a, a list of verses from which 
Uh, this statement of faith, by the way, is our original statement of faith. It's the one that the 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 people that came together, you know, uh, Pastor Calvin and the eleven members that started the church in 1939. They put together this statement of faith, borrowed from some other statements of faith, and and put this one together. And this is what we've had for 76 years. Okay, so so this is unchanged um, from that. So so what you're going to find is that these are biblical statements, and um, and these are just summaries of what the Bible teaches. We think. Secondly, they are historical statements. They are they have been used widely uh, by the first century church all the way till the time of. I think the the faithful churches in our day as well, and they're they're designed to 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 bring unity and guard against heresy or false teaching. And then thirdly, I already mentioned these are mere statements. Okay, so don't don't think this is all we believe about the issue. Um, these are just summaries. They're just mere statements. So we're going to proceed by reading through each section and then taking questions. And you'll see that we've grouped the statement of faith or the the original people that started the church, grouped them into 19 articles of faith. And I have grouped them into four categories. So if you look on the back of your handout, on the back it, start, it says Ambassador Baptist Church Statement of Faith Overview Chart. So there are the 19 statements along the left-hand side. And then I've grouped in them into four categories. First, those categories or those statements which are historically Christian. And when you think historically Christian, think of the broadest term of Christian. Okay, that is that this is what even Roman Catholics would have believed historically. Now, the historical is a key word there because Catholics have moved away from even some of these statements now that, that um, even uh, the original Catholics would have agreed with. So these are historically Christian. So in the broadest sense, Roman Catholic churches, uh, Greek Orthodox churches, and Protestant churches would all agree with these statements that we we are um, we are putting forth here, okay. But but notice that that I said historically Christian because there have been two great divides in Christianity in the past 1,000 years. First, the Reformation in the 1500s, which led to the recovery of the gospel, and it led to a split between Protestant churches and Roman Catholic churches, right? And so we've we've talked about that before. We'll talk about that more when we get to church history as well. The second major divide that happened in church history within the last thousand years is the liberal conservative divide that happened uh, following the Enlightenment period in the 18th and 19th century. That is, reason is king. Reason over faith. Reason is more important than faith. And so what happened is now instead of we take the Bible as God's Word, like this is the Word of God, people started to say things like, well, is is this really true? Could these miracles... Uh, could they just be maybe we could just explain them away some other way? Maybe they're not really miracles. You know, maybe Jesus wasn't born of a virgin. Those kinds of things. So that's what happened. And you, you start to have splinters uh, from a lot of these churches that we would call uh, went towards liberalism. Don't think political liberalism, but religious liberalism, that is theological liberalism. They started to become liberal in the way that they thought about the scriptures. No longer was God's, God's, author, or God's word the authority. Now it became man's reason that was the authority. So you had those two major divides. And as a result, this historically Christian category that you see there on your handout, um, the people started to move away from those kinds of basic doctrines that every Christian, every uh, even nominal Christian would believe. Second, you see that, that there are a number of articles that are class, classified as Protestant 
doctrines. These are articles that separate us from the Catholic Church. Okay, so so these are, are ones that would separate us from the Catholic Church and the Greek Orthodox churches. And we, we feel that they've made some really critical errors in these specific matters matters and and matters that are important even to salvation, like justification by faith alone. And then third, we have some uh, one Baptist article that distinguishes us from the rest of the Protestant brethren. So if you think about the the broadest sense of the term church, you have the splinter where it happened in the 1500s where you had the, the Protestants and the Catholics. So here from the Protestants, now in the 1600s, now you have uh, the, 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 the Baptists kind of splinter off of that group of Protestants. Over here you have Presbyterians, Lutherans, uh, and, and so on. Uh, so so this, this doctrine here about the, the ordinances, the baptism and the Lord's Supper, distinguishes us as a Baptist. And I think it's very important that, that, this, that we practice it this way. We think that these other Protestant brothers are wrong. Okay, that they're wrong when it comes to baptism. It, they're wrong in most cases when it comes to the Lord's Supper. Um, that, that there is a specific way that it must be done. And then finally, a congregational church. This is uh, one that would further divide us or separate us, I, I guess you could say, from um, some other of the Protestants or even the Episcopalians as well, um, that we are congregational. The, the authority does not reside in a priest or a pope or a bishop or a group of people are presbytery the authority in the local church resides with the congregation all right so any questions on that all right i'm going to take each doctrine one by one and i'm going to give a brief pause and so during that time that'll be your opportunity to ask questions or make comments um, we have a lot to cover so you're welcome to make comments along the way i'd like to get through the whole thing but if if your questions um keep us from doing that that's okay um but I do want to get through this. I think it's important for us to understand what we believe and, uh, and part of our history, really, as a church. All right, so I'll, I'll make a brief pause, and I'm not going to say anything, uh, probably. See how disciplined I am there, but, but I'll, I'll make a pause, and then that'll be your time to, to raise your hand and see if you have a question. Ambassador Baptist Church, statement of faith, to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are surely believed among us, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. The Scriptures. So notice on the, the back there uh, of your handout, I'm going to be flipping back and forth here, but um, this is a Protestant. This separates us from, from, the, um, from the Catholics. We believe that the Holy Bible, the 66 books from Genesis to Revelation, was written by men, divinely inspired, and that it is a treasure of heavenly instruction that it has God for its author and is the Word of God and does not contain the Word of God. It has salvation for its aim, that it has truth without any mixture of error for its matter, that it reveals the principles by which God will judge us, that it shall remain therefore to the end the true center of all Christian union. That is, that it is the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and opinions shall be tried. All right, the true God. We believe that there is only one living and true God, an infinite, intelligent spirit whose name is Jehovah, the maker and supreme rule of heaven and earth, that He is inexpressibly glorious in holiness, that He is worthy of all possible honor, confidence, and love, 
that in the unity of the Godhead there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that the three are equal in every divine perfection, that they execute distinct but harmonious offices in the great work of redemption. Okay, so that that was a doctrine that was historically Christian. That was what even Catholics would have agreed with this back in the 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 um, early church and and beyond. Do you have a question? No, no, it doesn't get into that. But um, but I think in this statement, modalism is the idea that. God kind of puts on coats, the way I understand it, right? He, like at one point, God it, God puts on His Father coat, and then He takes that off, and He puts on God the Son coat, and then He takes that off and puts on God the Spirit coat, and that's actually a, a heretical teaching. Um, that I'm not sure when it started, but but we know that that's not true because of the baptism of Christ, right? You have all three persons of the Trinity at the baptism. How, how does that work, right? Jesus is being baptized, and, and while He's there, the Holy Spirit of, of God is descending on Him like a dove, and the Father from heaven is saying, what? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And so He's not taking off His coats and, and kind of hurry up and switching to each little part. All three of ex- them exist eternally. They are Each person exists eternally as God, and yet each is God. So, um, Paul. Yeah. Three persons. Right. And and the other example that they use is like um like I'm a father, I'm a pastor, I'm a citizen of the United States, you know, for example. That that's not an accurate uh representation. In fact, there I don't know of a good illustration for the Trinity that God the God exists in three persons. You know, they try to do like the okay, water. You got water. Um, what is it? Steam and ice, or an egg. You have, I, I don't know, shell, yolk, and the white. Yeah. So, none of those work for God the Father. Okay, uh, or or God as the triune God. Um, we we need to understand that that each person is God, but each person is distinct. Um, so the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. But the Son is God, the Father is God, and the Spirit is God. All right, good. Next, this is another historically Christian doctrine, the Holy Spirit, on the back of the next page. We believe that the Holy Spirit is a divine person, equal with God the Father and God the Son, and of the same nature that He was active in the creation, that in His relationship to the unbelieving world, He restrains the evil one until God's great purpose is fulfilled, that He convicts of sin and righteousness and judgment, that He bears witness to the truth of the Gospel in preaching and testimony, that He is the agent of the new birth, that He seals, endues, guides, teaches, witnesses, sanctifies, and helps the believer in accordance with the Scriptures. Another historically Christian doctrine, the creation. We believe in the Genesis account of creation and that it is to be accepted literally and not allegorically or figuratively. That man was created directly in God's own image and after his likeness, that man's creation was not a matter of evolution or by evolutionary changes of species or development through interminable periods.
periods of time from lower to higher forms, that all animal and vegetable life was created directly, and that God's established law was and is that they should bring forth after their kind. Bob? Right. Right. Yeah, there are a couple um, what what people call theistic evolution, uh, theistic evolutionary ideas, which is one is that um, that God created the world at one point, and then the and then the world somehow formed into something, and then he he did some sort of creation after that. Then he did the six days. Other is each day represents a period of time. So each day could have been millions of years, is what people say. Or there, then there's a day age, I think it's the or the gap theory, which is then you have God creating, then a long gap of millions of years, and then another another day. So then they, what they do is they combine what they think as good science, evolution, and the Bible, and they combine them into two so that they both fit, so the Bible doesn't look bad. But but no, this statement uh, by literal, I take it to mean, and and by their the things that they're saying that it's not. They're trying to get rid of all those other statements that I've just tried to mention. Evolution, evolutionary changes of species, interminable periods of time, that's the gap theory. They're trying to say that that's not what we're saying. Um, so, so yeah, when they say literally, not allegorically, it's not, we don't take Genesis 1 as some kind of allegory for some, you know, something that happened that, that may happen or or it's really just a picture of something bigger that happened. No, it actually happened. There was evening and there was morning the first day. And God saw that it was good. Um, So each of those days are literal days and each time in the Hebrew text that you have a number combined with a day. So like the first day or the second. Any time in the Hebrew uh, Old Testament you see that. That's always referring to a literal 24-hour day. And probably the best evidence that, that that we had a literal creation that happened in six 24-hour days, consecutive 24-hour days, is from Exodus 20. Exodus 20, um, you have the fourth commandment to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And, and the reason that we're going to do that is because, God says, because in six days God made all that is, basically. And then on the seventh, he rested. And so we will rest, uh, is what God tells Israel in, in Exodus 20. And so each of those days, have to, if, if our week is based on the creation week, then it doesn't make sense. Our, our actual week, you know, we have Sunday through Saturday. Our actual week is based on the creation week. Then we should expect that creation was an actual week as well. Norma. The first flood before Noah, meaning during the time of Noah, during the time of his life, or do you, are you asking? Oh, no, there's no there's no other flood um, besides the Noahic flood, the one during the time of Noah. Um, that there, at one time, the wor- the the water needed to be separated from the land, and so God did that. I think was that on the first day. Um, or it was like on the second day, right? Because on the first day he created light. The second day he separated the the water from from the land. But no, there's no 
no worldwide flood, I should say, before Noah. Yeah. All right, the fall of man, historically Christian doctrine. We believe that man was created in holiness and innocence in the image of God under the law of his maker, but by voluntary transgression fell from that holy and blessed state, as a result or in consequence of which all mankind are now sinners. Man is not a sinner by constraint, but by choice. Man is therefore by nature utterly void of that holiness required by the law of God positively inclined to evil and therefore under just condemnation to eternal ruin. Man is therefore without defense or excuse. The virgin birth, historically Christian, we believe that Jesus Christ was begotten of the Holy Ghost in a miraculous manner, that He was born of the Virgin Mary, that His birth was as no other man has ever been born or ever can be born, and that He is the Son of God and God the Son. This doctrine is very, is very important. First, because it required for the it is required for the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy. Second, because it is absolutely necessary to Christ's atoning death. John wrote uh, his epistles to prove that Jesus came in the flesh. He had to be truly man to be the seed of the woman and also to take the kinsman part. He had to be truly man to be the seed of Abraham to inherit the promises. He had to be truly man to be the son of David to claim the throne of Israel. When Ahaz refused to ask a sign in Isaiah chapter 7, God gave one for all time greater than heaven or earth could afford. Alright, another historically Christian doctrine, the way of salvation. We believe that the salvation of the sinner is holy grace through the mediatorial offices of the Son of God, who by the appointment of the Father freely took upon Him our nature, yet without sin, honored the divine law by His personal obedience, and by His death made a full and substitutionary vicarious atonement for our sins. That His atonement consisted not in setting us an example by His death as a martyr, but was the voluntary substitution of Himself in the sinner's place, the just dying for the unjust, Christ the Lord bearing our sins in His own body on the tree, that having risen from the dead, He is now enthroned in heaven and united and uniting in His every way, qualified to be a suitable, a compassionate, and an all-sufficient Savior. Yeah, one of the things that I love about these statements is you, you can just hear the, the text of Scripture just come through. You know, that they, they um, in trying to summarize the doctrines of Scripture they use, like here in this section, he says, you know, that um, bearing on his sin is his own body on the tree from First Peter 2.24. All right, next, justification. This is a Protestant doctrine. So this is the something that now we're, we're splitting off from the Catholics on. These doctrines that we've been looking at, most of them so far have, have the Catholics would agree with them. Historic Catholics would have agreed with us on those. But here's where we... Uh, separate ourselves from them because we believe we take this from the Scriptures. Justification. We believe that the great gospel blessing which Jesus Christ secures to such as believe in Him is justification. That justification includes the pardon of sin, the promise of eternal life on principles of righteousness, that it is bestowed not in consideration of any works of righteousness which we have done, but solely through faith in the Redeemer's blood by virtue of which faith is his perfect righteousness is imputed to us of God, 
that it brings us into every other blessing needful for time and eternity. The new birth, another uh, Protestant doctrine. We believe that in order to be saved, sinners must be born again. That the new birth is a new creation in Christ Jesus. That it is instantaneous and not a process. That in the new birth, the dead in trespasses and in sins is made a partaker of the divine nature and receives eternal life, the free gift of God. That this new creation is brought about in a manner beyond our comprehension, not by culture, nor by character, nor by the will of man, but wholly and solely by the power of the Holy Spirit in connection with divine truth, the Bible, so as to secure our voluntary obedience to the Gospel, that its proper evidence appears in the holy fruit of repentance, faith, and newness of life. Alright, another Protestant doctrine, sanctification. Uh, that's not that, not that Catholics don't have a doctrine on sanctification. It's that our statement is going to differ from there. That's the idea here. Our, this would separate us from them. Sanctification. We believe that sanctification is the process by which, according to the will of God, we are made partakers of His holiness. That it is, sanctification is, a progressive work. That it is begun in regeneration and that it is carried on in the hearts of believers by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, the sealer and comforter, in the continual use of the appointed means, especially the Word of God, prayer, self-examination, self-denial, and watchfulness. It's one of the one of the most helpful statements, I think, in here because it tells how sanctification is a process. It's a progression that happens. And it doesn't just happen uh, automatically. Or uh, it happens when we are complicit with the Spirit. That, that we use the appointed means that are given. That's why, he, that's why our statement lists the Word of God, prayer, self-examination, so on. That as the Holy Spirit works in us through the Word, we are being complicit. We're, we're agreeing with it and following um, in obedience. Sanctification. All right, this next doctrine uh, falls under the category of congregational. So this separates us from some of the, even some of the other Protestant believers, um, congregational church. And I think we could actually just put this under Baptist because Baptist churches are congregational. Now, there are some that, that have moved to elder rule type situations, and that means that the congregation doesn't have the authority. But we believe that the congregation... Um, was designed by God to have the authority over the church. So we believe that a New Testament church is a congregation of baptized believers associated by a covenant of faith and fellowship in the Gospel, observing the ordinance of Christ, governed by His laws, exercising the gifts as set out in the Word of God, that its officers of ordination are pastors or elders and deacons, whose qualifications claims and duties are clearly defined in the Scriptures. We believe that the true mission of the church is found in the Great Commission to make disciples, to baptize the disciples, to build them up in the most holy faith, and to teach them to observe all things that have been commanded. We hold that it is the right of the local church to self-government, free from interference of any hierarchy or 
of individuals or organizations that the one and only superintendent is Christ through the Holy Spirit. That it is scriptural for local churches to to cooperate together in contending for the faith and for the furtherance of the gospel. That every church is the sole and only judge of the measure of its cooperation. And on all matters of membership, policy, polity, government, discipline, benevolence, the majority vote is the will of the local church in all things. Does that make sense? That the final authority doesn't come down to pastor or deacons. There is some leadership and influence involved in both of those positions, but but um, the the final authority comes down to the to the the congregation. That's why we have business meetings. That's why we don't just remove people from the church without talking with the church and getting a vote to remove people from the church. We use the church. Uh, the congregation is the are the ones who who actually make the decision for someone to come into the church in the first place, right? And um, and so in matters of all of these things, we we look to the congregation. We we don't have a towards the beginning it said we don't have a hierarchy. So you know you recognize that in a Presbyter- Presbyterian church, they're going to be very similar with us with regard to how we are saved. Uh, I, I think they have an orthodox view of salvation, justification. Um, but with regard to church government, they believe that that the authority resides in the presbytery. So you have really a hierarchy. You have inside the church, you have the minister, and then you have outside of that, you have um, these these presbyters, and then you have synods and sessions and the general assembly. And so you want to know what you believe. You want to know how you should practice things. You need to go ask them. You need to go up to a higher level. And a lot of times they'll send it down to you, to the to the local church, the various churches. But for us, we, we don't have an outside governing board. We don't go to another board and say, what should we believe about this? Now, we can ask for advice. That's no problem. But the ultimate authority resides in the congregation. Same thing with practice, the way that we practice government within this church polity. Um, we, we determine that within the church. Now, that doesn't mean that we go against the Bible and just do whatever we want. We, with regard to the Scriptures, we, we try to follow the Scriptures closely but we're not governed outside of of our church. Yes, Southern Baptist, um, the conservative Southern Baptist churches would be congregational. Now, they do have a convention that they willingly um, subscribe to, I guess you could say. And in that convention, they just agree that with these other Southern Baptist churches, we're going to help get, it, get missions out in, in this way. So, Yes, they would be congregational. Um, Westboro? I don't know. I don't know them. Oh, okay. Yes. Right. So the so the the association called GARB is the gen, is it the um, General Association of Regular Baptist Churches. Um, I'm not sure if this... Does anyone know if our church is ever part of that? Thought of it? Okay. That There's nothing unbiblical about joining a fellowship like that. Um, that's that's something that the church decides to do. In fact, in the statement it says that, that the church is the one who's going to determine um, down the middle of the last paragraph. 
It's scriptural for local churches to cooperate together in contending for the faith and for the furtherance of the gospel and that every church has the sole uh, and only judge of measure of its cooperation. So who determines whether they're going to join that fellowship? The fellowship is about one of the lowest levels of cooperation that you can have. The highest level, one of the highest levels probably is a denomination. Right? You have these denominations like a Presbyterian denomination where they say we have to we have to join together, you have to do it our way. The the PCUSA, the Presbyterian Churches of the United States of America. Um so those are but but a fellowship is much looser cooperation. So we actually are in cooperation with other churches as well, but it's not a formal cooperation, right? Right now we're doing things with First Baptist Sterling Heights, we're doing things with First Baptist um of Troy, uh occasionally with Grace Baptist of Waterford and so on. So so there's nothing, and historically, before I was here with Pastor Talbert, um, with uh, Community Baptist in Madison Heights, so there's nothing unbiblical about any of those things. The church needs to decide if they want to have those kinds of cooperation. One thing that we need to recognize is that that um, there is a difference between autonomy and independence. Okay, Autonomy is self-rule, no, no rule outside of us, but self-rule, our congregation is going to rule. But independence is not a good thing. Okay, independence means we're just all in our own little group and we're not going to look outside ourselves at all. It's actually not healthy, I don't think, for a church to to to, to not be in cooperation with some other churches, right? That that have like faith and practices. So, um, to the extent that we do that, um, that's something that we need to uh, work through as a congregation. But but I think it is a healthy thing to be in fellowship with other churches. Now, the level of that fellowship, that's where we have to figure out what we want to do. All right, this is a Baptist distinctive. This next one, baptism and the Lord's Supper. We believe that Christian baptism is the immersion in water of a believer in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit on the authority of the local church to show forth in a beautiful and solemn emblem our faith in the crucified, buried, risen Savior. With its effect in our death to sin and resurrection to newness of life, that it is a prerequisite to church relationship and to the Lord's Supper in which the members of the church by the sacred use of the bread and cup are to commemorate the dying love of Christ, preceded always by a solemn self-examination. The Lord's Supper will be celebrated once a month at the close of the morning service or as often as the pastor shall decide. So there was some discussion uh, from some non-members with me not too long ago about whether we should allow just anyone to take the Lord's Supper or only members. And here's one of the main re- I, I think, first of all, the main reason is because I think it's biblical for only members to be taking the Lord's Supper, at least a member of this church or another, a church like ours. But, but here's the second main reason. It's because it's in our statement of faith. Did you see that there? That it is a prerequisite. Lord's Supper is a prerequisite to church. I'm sorry. Baptism is a prerequisite to church relationship and to the Lord's Supper, into which the members of the church take of the bread and the cup. Okay. So, so this is not just me. You know, like, hey, you know, this is my my crazy idea that I want to enforce. This is what our statement of faith says. So, so um, I, I think that's a a good statement of faith. I think that's wise. I, I don't think. You know, like we talked about last week, why join a church? I don't think it's wise for a believer to not be a member of a church. I, I don't think that's a normal normal pattern of the scriptures. And so, 
when we say, no, you, you are not to be taking the Lord's Supper with us because you're not a member of our church or another church like ours, then we're actually doing something that's loving for that person by telling them, you need to get out of your situation where you think you're safe and in good standing with God and get into a place where you can be held accountable and you can help other uh, help hold, hold other people accountable as well. All right. Next to Lord's Day, historically Christian doctrine. We believe that the first day of the week is the Lord's Day and is to be kept sacred to religious purposes by abstaining from all needless labor and recreation and by the devout observance of all the means of grace, both private and public, and by preparation for that rest that remaineth for the people of God. The Believer's Walk, historically Christian. We believe that since the citizenship of the child of God is in heaven, that henceforth he is to walk separately from this present evil world, having no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, abstaining from every appearance of evil so as not to conform to its character or conduct, whether it be in amusements or habits, which defile both mind and body. Historically Christian doctrine, the resurrection and the return of Christ. So this is what churches would have agreed with in the first to really the the um, 11th century. We believe in and accept the sacred scriptures at their face value, face value on these subjects. On the resurrection, we believe that Christ rose bodily from the grave the third day, according to the scriptures, and that He ascended to the right hand of the throne of God, that He alone is our merciful and faithful high priest and things pertaining to God. We believe that this same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you've seen Him go into heaven. And we believe in the blessed hope, the personal, visible, pre-millennial, pre-tribulational, and imminent coming of our Lord and Savior. So that last statement is talking about the rapture specifically, that Christ is going to come before the millennial, before the millennial kingdom and before the tribulation. Okay, that, that sets us apart from some others who would say that Christ comes at the midpoint of the tribulation or at the end of the tribulation or that there is no millennium. So that's an important statement. Jonathan. Right. Right. His actual bodily return, so the, the second to last paragraph there, we believe that this same Jesus which is taken up into you heaven will so come in like manner. That was Jesus, or that was the angels in Acts 1 promising to the disciples that He's going to come back bodily. Just as you saw Him go bodily into the sky, so He's going to return bodily to the ground, specifically on the Mount of Olives. He's going to return, touch down, and then uh, take on the the um, enemy armies at the Battle of Armageddon. So, But that last statement then in the statement um, actually has talks about the rapture, and that's just going to be a meeting in the air. So this statement is um, the resurrection and return of Christ and the return of Christ, technically, it kind of starts at the rapture, but the actual return of Christ is when He touches back down on the earth. Does that answer your question? Yeah. So there's, you kind of need to know some technical details about the end times, but, but I think this statement is, is a good one. Missions. Historically Christian, we believe that the command to give the gospel to the whole world is clear and unmistakable, and this commission was given to the church. No distinction is made in the Scriptures between home and foreign missions as we, have, as we have them today. So it is our duty to be a missionary church and to have a part in sending the Gospel throughout the entire world. 
in this statement, you hear um, really the foundation of our church, which the original name was Oak Missionary Baptist Church. Missionary Baptist churches um, don't see a distinction between foreign missions and home missions. I think that's a biblical uh, a biblical uh, position to take. That that we shouldn't just think you know we need to send missionaries out there. That missions needs to happen here as well, right? We need to reach people here, um, and so that's what you just I mean just comes out really loudly and clearly in that statement that we are a missionary Baptist church. Finances, this would be a Protestant um, doctrine. We believe that the method of giving to the work of the Lord is very clearly set out in the Scriptures. We believe that scriptural giving is one of the fundamentals of the faith. We believe that God's work should be carried on by the tithes and offerings of God's people and that no other methods should be used to solicit money. So we don't do fundraisers here. Um, we, we, we believe that God's going to provide through primarily through the offerings of the church. That doesn't mean we can't invest our money in various ways as we do, but it does mean that, that we expect God to, to provide for His work here. And that's what has happened historically. Another Protestant doctrine, the righteous and the wicked. Just two more left here, so bear with me. We believe that there is a radical difference between the eternal destiny of the righteous and the wicked. We believe that the moment a person accepts the Lord Jesus Christ as personal Savior and in true repentance calls upon His name, that that person is eternally saved. While the, personally, while the other person who continues in sin and finally rejects the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior is eternally lost. All right, and then finally, the perseverance of the saints, a Protestant doctrine. We believe that such only are real believers as endure to the end. The only true believers are the ones who actually finish. That their persevering attachment to Christ is the grand mark which distinguishes them from superficial professors, those who just profess faith in Christ but actually don't live it that a special providence watches over their welfare and that they are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. That comes from 1 Peter chapter 2. They're kept by the power of God. So we, we persevere, but that's not ultimately what God looks at. That's simply an evidence that we are truly His. Those are the only genuine believers. Alright, so that's all the doctrines. Anyone have any questions on anything that we've looked at? Lord's Day. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and this is actually um, this is probably taken from a covenant view of theology, which is that that the church is the new Israel. So we. Our Lord's Day, Sunday, is the Old Testament Sabbath day. But, but actually, um, what I think is, is actually the case is that that one commandment, the, the uh, fourth commandment to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, was meant for Israel and Israel alone. We don't have a commandment like that in the New Testament. Um, we, we should, I think, meet on the Lord's Day. Um, we should be giving on the Lord's Day. We should be encouraging one another. That's why you have some of these verses here. Hebrews 10:24 and 25. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. So, so you need to meet. 
together. And then some of these other New Testament verses, 1 Corinthians 16, talking about meeting on the first day of the week. They would give to this fund on the first day of the week. So that's where that they're getting that idea. But I think as far as abstaining from needless labor and recreation, that's more of an Old Testament idea. So um, I guess what we don't have to do is take our whole statement of faith and just you know rip the whole thing up because the Lord's Day probably not probably not stated in the best way I I I would say it that way um, instead what we can do is recognize that there are there are levels of importance when it comes to these doctrines I hope you recognize that right some of these doctrines are critical to our belief in Jesus Christ whether or not we are saved others are uh, they are dependent on how we're going to live as believers and others like these like the Lord's Day, is of even lesser importance. So, so, in other words, there are some doctrines which are central to our faith that we cannot deny and that we must agree to, right? So, like, we must believe that only Jesus is, is the answer to our salvation. That's something we can't deny. So, if our statement had something in that like that, I'd have a huge problem. Okay, there's no, there are other statements that we cannot deny, like the virgin birth. Like, you know, I think of it like, a child when they come to Christ don't they don't really understand the virgin birth fully right I didn't understand it when I came to Christ um, I was ten or twelve years old and I didn't really understand what all that meant but but if I came to a point where after making a profession of faith I came to understand the virgin birth and said I don't agree with this I I deny that then that that means I'm not actually a believer because it is essential to um, to believing the Bible okay so there are some doctrines that we must agree to. There are some doctrines that we cannot deny. There are other doctrines that that um, we think are obedience issues, right? Like baptism. Only believers should be baptized. We don't baptize infants here. Uh, we don't baptize anyone who's not a believer here. Uh, so, so that would be something that's not going to keep us out of heaven, right? If we believe differently. We, we have some other brothers and sisters in Christ in Presbyterian churches that do baptize infants, right? So, so, but, so that's a third level. So we could say those things we must believe, those things we can't deny, those things that are important to how we live as a church. And then finally, I think there's these other issues like the Lord's Day here, that if we deny it, you know, um, then it doesn't affect too much about how we live. I, I personally don't have a problem with mowing the lawn on Sunday. I don't have a problem with um, raking leaves or going to a restaurant. Uh, I don't think that that is in violation to any commands in Scripture. Um, I don't have a problem with working on Sunday. I do it every Sunday, almost. But um, <laughs> that's the only day I work, right? <laughs> Yeah. And that would be the way to come at it, not from Old Testament Exodus 20, which I think is listed in in here. You know, Exodus 20. Right. Yeah, because if we're going to really obey that command to remember the Sabbath, then we need to remember Saturday, not Sunday, because there's no command to remember Sunday and keep it holy. So um, that's a good question. I, I've thought through that a lot myself, um, but... But I think overall we have a great 
statement of faith that we can hold to very strongly and that we should uh, protect um, because it is important to to our church's life. And I think it, it does well to summarize the what we believe as a church about this Bible that we love. All right, let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Lord, thank You for Your Word and thank You that it is clear enough for us to understand And I pray that You would help us to live according to Your Word and that it would be the final rule of our authority. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to... uh, Next time we'll get to that that church covenant. I think uh, two two classes from now. Next week is is what's so special about being a Baptist. Then we'll talk about the church covenant and, uh, and we'll go from there. All right, you're dismissed.